0: So we're gonna talk we're gonna talk Philippians, so y'all can go there. But and, and this is all I'm gonna do, so I don't want anybody to get a, you know get nervous. Okay. I don't want anybody to get nervous. I just thought that this wouldn't take very long and for the few people that care. I thought I would just show you the first four letters of the Greek alphabet. There's not very many of them. If we do this six times, you'll have the whole alphabet. Somebody's brought you the alphabet. Then so, you learn it, and now you can get into your concordances easier. You get into your dictionaries easier. Then somebody's going to get a hunger to want to learn Greek, and I'm going to get to do a Greek class. can't wait. Okay, anyway. So um, the first four letters of the Greek alphabet... They look like, you know, obviously these two look a lot like uh, the the, the capital letters look the same. Uh, These are the lowercase letters. If you went to um, the desert in the wilderness, let's say, near the Dead Sea, and you ran into some cave and you happened to pull out a scroll and you found in some jar (laughs) a scroll, and you saw the writing on it, and it was a New Testament, not an Old Testament, it was a New Testament, then what would happen is all the letters would be in capitals. Okay, a lot of those are unseals or unshuls. Those are those are like it's just like uh, no spaces, just capital letter after capital letter. And then the 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 scholar, the the theologian, the, they have to come here and do the breaks where the words are because it's no there's no spacing. Okay, but a lot of the manuscripts that we have are in lowercase letters and regard and, and certainly any tool you use that you bought, you know, to, to help you in your Bible study, most of the letters are going to be this, so it's always more helpful to memorize these forms than those forms. Okay? If you're going if you're choosing. This is alpha and it's short A like the a in father, and this is kind of comical. I've had to explain this to Luke. Okay, in Texas, short a sounds like sa, ah ah. Okay, but in Greek, the short a there, there's no ah in Greek. There's only ah. Father. Okay, so apparently, uh, apparently, the Greek, uh, the ancient Greeks are direct descendants of my weirdo family in Connecticut. They park, they ca, and ha, oh, yeah. Okay, anyway, so anyway, <laughs> alpha is ah, oh, ah, oh, okay, short A. Then you get beta, which is B, uh, wow, beta, which is just like our B, and it sounds like our B. This is a little, throw you off a little bit. You want this to be C, and you want this to be Y, but it isn't. This is gamma, so it's G, It sounds a lot like, I mean, it sounds very much like our hard G sound, not the G in Genesis, but the G in Go, G. So you got A, B, G, and then D, Delta. Some of you from science classes or math, you may remember this symbol as a math Delta. And then, of course, that looks like our D a little bit, so Delta, okay? All right. Anyway, I'm not gonna. Don't worry. I'm not gonna spend an hour on that. I just wanted you to. For whoever cares, there you go. Now you're already. You are one sixth of the way through. Now you're ready to go. See, you're you're very close. And you're welcome. That's 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 a, a freebie. Somebody read for me, if you would. We're gonna get to Philippians, but just before you do, I want to show you something. The Holy Spirit was, uh, reminding me. I want you to read this. Somebody read Exodus 19. Get ready to do that. Exodus 19 verses 5 through 6 and then somebody else, uh, let's see if I can let me make sure this is right this last part, I just wanted somebody to read Exodus 19 to us to remind us of something and then um, yeah, somebody else go to Luke 6 27 through 36 that section just want to read these to you. Right now, my my Bible reading looks like this. Uh, 30 years ago, I learned to read the one-year Bible. And the one-year Bible, uh, I don't mean like an app on your phone, like the old book, the one-year Bible. You would read like two or three chapters or something in the Old Testament, and then one chapter in the New Testament, and then a little bit of a psalm and a little bit of a proverb. Those little one-year Bibles, I got a bunch of them in the office. And that's one time when I was preaching at a church, I just Uh, Become pastor, the first church I ever pastored. I realized one day when I was preaching, I said, It's like Daniel in the Bible. And these people were looking at me like they didn't know who Daniel was. And I was like, Okay. And so I went and I bought a bunch of one year Bibles and I stacked them up like a pyramid in front of the pulpit the next Sunday. And I said, You're going to want to get one of these because we're going to be preaching out of this and we're going to read this as a family. You're going to go home and read this with your family, and you're going to read it at night with your kids, and I'm going to preach from the passages that we're reading from as families every week, and God's going to help me because that's that's what we got to do because you people need to know the fundamentals. And maybe you know it's a good idea to go back to that. I don't know. But the one-year Bible, that reading plan is like twice as much Old Testament as New Testament, and the idea was you would finish you know in a year if you do that. Okay, so since I'm not doing the one-year Bible so much, but I've, I've just kept that in the back of my mind. And so my daily readings right now, I'm in the Old Testament, I'm in Luke, and in the New Te- I mean Exodus and then the New Testament, I'm in Luke. These are this is my Bible reading right now. And this week, as I was reading through, the Holy Spirit just reinforced a couple of things that I'd like for, for us to just see before we do our actual study tonight, flipping Somebody who's got Exodus nineteen, would you raise your hand and just Okay, go ahead, Catherine. If you got it. go ahead. Read those two verses, verse five and six. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Amen. So, we've been saying in this church for months now that God called Adam to be a royal priest. And one of the reasons that we've said that is because of the commission that he was given in the garden to dress and to keep the garden. And we said that these two verbs are verbs that are used for Aaron and the priests in the tabernacle and for Solomon's priests in the first temple. Dress and keep. This means something like cultivate and preserve. Something like you know, develop and protect, those kinds of words. Adam was supposed to do those things. He was a priest of Eden. And then when he failed in his commission to be obedient humanity, because by the way, God wants to rule his world through obedient humanity. That's what he wants to do. That's his plan. He wants to share power. God wants to rule the world he created through obedient humanity. And so he tried with Adam. That didn't work out so well. So then, guess what he did? He found himself a second one named Abraham. He just called this man out of Babylon. Sometimes people forget that the father of the faith, the father of the Jewish people, was actually a Babylonian moon worshiper when God called him. <laughs> what were you when God called you? Hello. No, what I was. <laughs> Abram. Abram was a moon worshiping ba- a Babylonian when God called him. And then he becomes the father of the faith. And now the Pharisees in Jesus' day are saying, we're children of Abraham, as if to say that they had pure blood. And it was like, really? Because that guy was a Babylonian. But anyway, okay. So God said, I'm going to rule. Okay, if Adam, you failed to obey, but guess what? I'm not done with humanity. So he says, Israel's going to accomplish this. God does not choose Israel because of any specific characteristics of themselves, nor does he do it just to be exclusive the Bible says off of the Old Testament, what Catherine just read as one example in Exodus, that God chose Israel to be the vehicle, the kingdom of priests, royal priests, so that they could then be the light to the Gentiles, to, give, to, to, to develop God's world in wise stewardship. So in other words, that was the plan. Now, then what we find out later is that what Israel can't do collectively, Israel's Messiah does. He takes up the commission of Israel into himself. And one Jewish person, who also happens to be a son of David, royal, offers a perfect sacrifice as a priest, right? A royal priest. He comes preaching. Here comes the kingdom of God, okay? And then the scripture says that if I'm in the Messiah, if I, by the way, when people say this, I've been trying to mention this on Thursday nights. When you hear this so often, sometimes people start to think that Christ is Jesus' last name. And it's not. It's like Joseph Christ and Mary Christ had Jesus Christ. That's not what happened. Okay. Jesus is, is his name, the person's name. Christ is a title. Christ means Christ, Christos or, or Messiah is what it actually is. Anointed one, okay? A Messiah. So Jesus, uh, if we're in the Messiah, if we're in Jesus Christ... Then the Bible says, 1 Peter two nine, that we are then this new humanity that are royal priests. And I just want you to see that theme again, because I'm going to keep pounding that into our heads until we believe it and until we act on it. Because God wants to rule his world through royal priests, through human beings that are the true human beings. Jesus... is the firstborn from among the dead. He's the first one to go into the resurrected future with a resurrected body and we now are in Him so we get to be fueled and fed by that future power and vision and in the today, in the right now, even though it's not complete and it's not what it shall be, Right now, we get a real taste. We get an engagement ring for the wedding. We get a down payment on the final payment. We actually get to experience the power of the new age to come in this life. And because of that, because we're in Him, the true human, the royal priest, we are now royal priests and priestesses. And we have the right, the authority, and also the responsibility to rule God's world in wise fashion. That's what God called us to do. And if anything that we live less than that is a tragedy. Because that's what we can be. And, uh, and I'm preaching to me as much as I'm preaching to, all, to, to you. okay? But I just wanted to... That's not Philippians, but that's a, that was my Bible reading this week. And I thought, wow, that really that hit home. I'm, I don't think I'm going to take time to read the whole Luke passage. But let me just offer you this. All that I just said sounds wonderful. It's exciting. Oh, wait, I get to be in charge. Luke 6. Was my reading the other day? The same day I read Exodus 19 about being a royal priest, and I don't want to read all of it, but I just want to tell you. I'll tell you. I'll tell you the gist of it. Jesus says in Luke 6, "Love your enemies." Here's what a royal priest does, because you don't have to. You don't have to be accepted by them. I don't. Matt doesn't have to think that I'm a great person. Mike doesn't have to think I'm cool and all it or whatever. Because God, the Father who ruled the heavens, says so about me. I'm adopted into his family, and therefore, when they're talking trash about me over there, or when they won't talk to me, or when they're neglecting me, or when they alienate me, or whatever... I count that all joy because royal priests lead by serving. They love their enemies. They turn the other cheek. They give the cloak or the tunic even when someone asks for a coat. That They don't have to grasp for power. They don't have to reach out for attention. They don't have to grasp for everybody to like them because they know who they are in Jesus Christ. And so this idea of ruling and reigning doesn't look like the right hand of power that we're so used to in the world. The crushing power. God is a southpaw. God is a lefty. Okay? We, I've told you this before. In Latin, the word for right hand is dexter, where we get our word dexterity from. Strength. So right-handed people, historically from Latin, are strong. But the left-handed people, this is why they used to try to make you not write with your left hand when you were in school years and years ago. That's the Latin word for left. Amen.
1: There is a a bias.
0: There's a bias in the language against left-handed people. Think about this for a minute. If someone gives you a left-handed compliment, they are not doing something nice. They're saying something, it's like, you're not bad looking for a king for one of those kings it's like well you just said that i wasn't bad looking but then you said for one of those kings what does that mean well for ugly folk you know so it's like okay that's that's a left-handed compliment okay if you dance with two left feet that's not a good thing right What's that? that's that's a you're not a good dancer this whole thing that just came out of left field That's not a good thing. That's not like well thought out. If something came out of left field, that means that was nuts, right? Okay, there is a bias in this language against lefties, okay? Against the left. Now, here's the deal. This is the truth. The Bible says that God is holy, which means he's different. And time and time again, God chooses, he he, he acts in surprise. When he wants to win a battle, He doesn't say, Josh, he doesn't go like, I need everybody who's really skilled at fighting. I want everybody, that's the right hand of power. Let me get all the biggest dudes with the most battle fight, you know, experience, and let's get them up there in the front and have them ready to go. He doesn't do that. He's like, you know what? I'd like for those guys to just take a walk. And what I want is the choir to come up, and I'd like for them to sing. That's right, and then while they're singing, all of a sudden, the people are just going to be like, I don't know if their singing was so bad or what, but they're just going to start banging their heads against the wall, and then they're going to run away, You know, or, or, or a plague of rats is going to come through the camp, or something crazy, some crazy, and God wins battles out of left field. And God doesn't choose people the way we would choose people. If you've got to have somebody go be a spokesman to Pharaoh of Egypt, you want Joel Osteen, you want... Tony Robbins, you want a, a motivational speaker or somebody with a booming voice. You want Billy Graham saying time and time again, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. You, know, you want that. You want that, that, that voice. You want T.L. Lowry from the Church of God. That man could say anything, anything. Like, get me a drink of water. But when he said, get me a drink of water, it just sounded like the most important thing anybody ever said in the history of the world. Get me a drink of water. Or something like that. Okay? Yes, sir. Okay, absolutely. Okay. So, I want... If I'm a human being, I'm looking for somebody important to go talk to Pharaoh. God goes and picks Meltelis. Porky pig. (laughs) (laughs) The, 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 saith the Lord, get God of Israel, let my people go. Because, because... When God wants to do this, when God wants to speak this, He says everybody in Egypt is going to know that I'm the Lord when this is done, because I want a guy who's available, not somebody who's some great speaker. Because you know all that laughing they're doing when Porky Pig's talking to them that let my people go. All that laughing they're doing now, you know, I want them to know that God is 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 the the, the true God, the God of Israel is the true God. And here's the deal: I want them to know this because. All that laughing they're doing now, ten plagues later, you know, when the children of Israel walk out of, they'll know there's a God in heaven. That God, is God. same thing with who He chooses to pick for battles. Uh, I mean, for uh, judges. How about Samson? When I was a kid, I've, some of you have heard this sermon before, but when I was a kid. Victor Mature, those those old 60s reruns would come on TV and these were the only things we were allowed to watch at Mimi and Pawpaw's house on television. So Victor Mature was a guy from the 60s or 50s or whatever, I guess. I don't know, but anyway, he played Samson. He was like one of the bigger actors in Hollywood at the time. So today if they cast this movie, they would play they would, somebody like The Rock would do it. Okay? That's who they would cast. But that's because that's Hollywood. But if you read the book of Judges and if you read Hebrews where the Bible talks about Samson, you will not find one verse in all the Bible that says that man was a big man or muscle-bound man or Hulk Hogan or the Rock. That's our way of thinking. That's right hands of power. God's a lefty. If I know God like I think I do, he was my size. This dude was my size. Because when Hulk Hogan carries off the gates of the city of Gaza... Everybody goes, no, well, that's about right. But when Sean King carries off the gates of the city of Gaza, people say, man, only God could be doing that. Yeah? So God chooses... He's, left, he's a southpaw. He surprises us. He loves the people that are unlovable. He doesn't just love the people who love Him back. He doesn't just love the lovely people. His love is holy. It's different love. It's different because His love... Number one is unconditional. He loves, period. He loves everyone. He loves forever. His love is transformative. But it's also just different in its selection. God's, God loves people that no one else loves. This week I had to read. I got the chance to read the, uh, the story of, uh, of the woman with the issue of blood and the man of Gadarenes and these people that other people are kind of giving up on. And are alienated from others. And God's love extended to them is, uh, is uh, left-handed. It's surprising. It's a southpaw. Okay? So, that's the, so, yay, we're royal priests, but royal priests don't lead with right hand of power. They don't walk in and announce who they are so you will respect me because I'm a royal priest. Not this path. The Messiah didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life away. And that becomes the pattern for you and me. Paul's going to say in the letter we're reading tonight, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, that I might be like him in his death. Let me be like him, giving my life away, giving it away. That is what royal priests do. And you can afford to do that. Because you're not grasping at this one life because this is all you get. One life to live, the soap opera said. That's not what we're believing. That's not who we are. We know that to live is Christ, but to die is gain because we're going to live forever. There's life after life after death. Try that one. Think about that one. There's life after life after death. We're going to be royal priests and reigning with him forever. So if you know that, then you take today for everything it's got and you give everything you got, but you can give away yourself without the fear that you've missed out on life because you're not grasping for life. You know, when COVID happened, I was certainly concerned about the older people in our communities that were, that were concerned and scared and vulnerable. But I was kind of taken aback by the fear that gripped so many Christian people Again, I mean, I understand, and, I, and I, I did. I understood, Like, especially like with people that were, were a vulnerable population. I totally got that. And, and we, our church, remember, we sent iPads to those people that were in convalescent homes that didn't get a chance to see their families. That was awful, the way they were isolating. We sent iPads so they could do the face-to-face times with their families. And so we tried to minister to them the best we could at our church here. We did. And I, I, I mean, I respected the situation. I understood the vulnerabilities but i heard a lot of christian people who just seemed like the, the the terror in in them was like you know it didn't seem to match up with the profession of our faith yeah. that uh you know i want to live i'm not you know if there's a bus coming for heaven tonight i mean i'd like to stick around and dad you know father my kid and take care of you guys and love y'all and be with my wife and do the things that god's given me to do i got some tasks i think i'm supposed to do but the truth is is that if something happens you know, to, to us as a, as a society, a nation, or something happens to me. Um, you know, my, my faith is that what we're going to read tonight, that uh, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That, uh, yeah. That's what royal priests, they don't have to grasp at life because they've already been given it. And they know who they are and where they're headed and whose they are and what their authority is. And they don't have to be afraid that they're not going to be accepted by the Father because they've already been accepted in the beloved. Oh, and they don't have to fear that they're going to fail because God loves them and he's never going to love them more if they try harder. That's right. Right? But you don't have to live in that slavery. And so since you know that and you have confidence that dad trusts you and wants to use you and your life matters, then you have motivation to get out there and show out. Be who God showed you to be and built you to be. Okay. Philippians. Uh, yeah, Philippians. Chapter 1. We're going to finish this chapter tonight. I'm going to read it. I'm not going to try to teach all of it. uh, But actually, I'm going to try to use this to launch into something we said last week and show you how it shows up in all these passages. Philippians 1, the Bible says, uh, verse 19, Yes, and I will rejoice. He's used that word a lot, rejoice. This is a guy in prison unjustly, but constantly saying, rejoice, I will rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's talking about being in prison. He's talking about being in prison and the Roman imperial guard finding out why he's in prison and who he is. And that other people that are Christians are becoming more bolder because he is giving He's making this sacrifice and willing to go to jail for it. And so the gospel is advancing. And so so many more people are becoming more bold. And so many more people, even in power, are starting to understand why Paul's in prison. And so he says, I think all this, with your prayers and help of the Holy Spirit or the the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this is going to turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed But that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Here we go. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, And now here that I still have. You can see that what I was saying to you resonates and echoes something that Paul's already said. A lot of what I was saying just now is there in what we just read about in Paul. Um, I want to say, I'm going to try to write this as a sentence. Last week we talked about four, remember those four steps, those four stages, those four ideas that... It wasn't so much the Holy Spirit had revealed to me this original, uh, this original idea as much as it was an original arrangement for me. Something I'd never seen before. Okay. The vision of life. Okay. This is... Vision's that first word we talked about last week. The vision of life... <coughs> informed by the story of Scripture, okay, the vision of life informed by the story of Scripture fleshed out, get this the way I wrote it this week, fleshed out, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, fleshed out through Is what I think my life's mission is. And if I'm going to live, if I'm going to live and not die, then I think this is what I'm living for. Paul said, it's better for me that I go, but I'm pretty sure that the Lord's got plans for me and it's necessary. And so I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joining the faith. As long as I've got life, as long as I got breath in my body, that's it right there. Amen. That's what it's for. The vision, developing in people, the vision of life that's informed by the story of Scripture, fleshed out through the formation of character, virtues, perfected in community. That's what we talked about last week. So, let's start with the first one again. Proverbs 29 and 18 says, Without a vision, people perish. But that's not talking about having an imagination, okay? That's not what it's talking about. When it says "without a vision, people perish," it's talking about a prophetic vision. Amen. Okay, it's not talking about your imagination. People, some people can look at a, a land; they can look at land and they can see a future dwelling. They can look out there at the at the the raw material, and they can say, we're going to cut that down, we're going to move that, we're going to bring water in there, we're going to do this. And they can, they can develop, they have this imagination and they can see and that's a wonderful creative trait that's like the Lord in many ways. But that's not what this verse is saying. It's not saying that without that kind of imagination people perish. It's talking about prophetic vision and I'm going to read it to you, all of it, so you'll, you'll have it. ESV says, where there is no prophetic vision, The people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Okay, so the the phrase, the verse 18, connects prophecy and the law. Those are the two big parts of the scripture, right? And so he says, without a prophetic vision, the old King James said people perish, but the ESV and NIV and most of the newer translations have have taken the word perish and actually there's a more specific way that perishing is a very specific kind of perishing it's not death it's not it's not without a vision people die of cancer it's without a vision without prophetic vision people throw off restraint they get into anarchy when you don't have an aim if you are if you are a project manager at your job or you are in charge of people at work in some way you have any Authority like that whatsoever. You know that the people working for you, okay, you know that if you just, in, 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 I, mean, I don't know what the number is. I don't want to throw a number on it. But in most instances in human community, if those people don't have a vision, they don't understand what it is that you expect from them. We need 10 rivets by the end of the day, okay, or whatever it is that you're doing. If they don't have a vision, if you just say, you guys, you ladies, y'all just get in there and do what you think is best today, what is going to get accomplished? Can you count on that? Will your business be profitable? Probably not, right? As a teacher, can I walk into a classroom and say, here's the deal. Here's the syllabus this year. The syllabus is, you get to create the class. Good luck to you, okay? Will I have any kind of success or is this going to be anarchy? Well, if you talk to Austin, apparently they think there's success in that. I never found it. Okay, I never found it. I never could find it. There has to be some kind of end game. We call it a telos. That's the Greek word. It has to have an end. There has to be a purpose for which we are fit. Without prophetic vision, people cast off restraint. They perish because they don't know where to go. They throw off restraint. Without inspired guidance, a people falls into anarchy. But the last part of this verse says, "But basically, a law-abiding people is very happy. If you have a law, if you know where you're going, if you know where you're headed, then there's there's happiness in that." Okay. So this vision is prophetic vision. I want you to think about this too. Think about Exodus twenty. When Moses goes up onto the mountain, and think about this God gives the law on the mountain. Remember that? Okay? There's that giving of that law and the vision of God. God shows himself to Moses and gives the law. What's the opposite of that? What's happening down in the valley? Shame. Right? There's a prophetic vision on the mountain. Moses is seeing the Lord. And he is understanding and he's gathering inspired guidance on which way to go. Without that, what happens to people? The same thing that happened to the people at the valley. They build golden calves to worship. Right? You see the contrast? Okay, so that's that's what's going on. Uh, Somebody go to 1 Samuel 3 and 1. 1 Samuel 3 and 1 and read read that verse for me. Anybody that will. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In these days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. In Samuel's day, when he was born, the word of the Lord was rare. There weren't many visions. Okay? And so, public morality had failed. The reason it had failed is because public, public morality depends on knowledge of God. If you don't have a vision of who God is and therefore then who we are, who you are like a royal priest, then you will throw off restraint. Okay? You will you will your foolish heart when you don't thank God and consider him as God, you will throw off restraint and all manner of evil and disaster will occur. That's the scripture's teaching. Read Romans one, right? Isaiah's upset because Uzziah's dead, and Uzziah is one of the great kings of Judah. He lived, for, he reigned for fifty-two years. What's the longest pastorate you've ever heard of? Anybody? Just say a number. Twenty-five. Anybody ever heard of somebody pastoring longer than that? My childhood pastor pastored 33 years, J.T. Gillum. Anybody ever heard of a longer than that? I think Criswell pastored the Baptist first Baptist in Dallas 40, 50 years. I think he did. 52. Yes, sir, you got one. Brother, I he just had 65. 65? I did not know that. 52 years, Uzziah was king of Judah. Think about that. The longevity of that. Dallas Cowboys built a franchise for 20-some-odd years with Tom Landry, right? It's a different kind of organization. They had a bunch of coaches since then. You can do this on almost any level. When teachers are running in and out of uh, of schools, when pastors are running in and out of churches, there's no sustained leadership. It's a problem. This dude provided stable leadership, 52 years. Plus, the Bible says he was good for the economy. He rebuilt the city, Elath, that was on the the, uh, Red Sea. He rebuilt that city. He made, in other words, he, he, he was able to accomplish something economically. He was good for the economy. He was good for the na- nation's defense. The Bible said he destroyed the Philistine garrisons, and then after he destroyed all their garrisons, all the threats, then he went in there and won the hearts and minds of the Philistines and made, and made common alliance with them. He was a great king. The Bible says he died, uh, excuse me, so, so anyway, after 52 years, he's a good king as it is, and so Isaiah is a young man growing up in his court, and this guy is his idol. And I've told this church many times. When I was a kid, Roger Staubach and Luke Skywalker were my idols. I mean, these were the guys you know I wanted to be like. Okay? This was Isaiah's idol. Isaiah was the guy. His death was devastating. It was a crisis. The nation was in a crisis of leadership. What will happen to the economy now that this strong king... What will happen? Will our neighbors think that that we're weak? What will happen when he dies? Now that he's dead, what's going to happen? And then not only that, but this guy didn't just die. His death wasn't just devastating. What was it? It was disillusioning. It was disillusioning because of the way he died. He was like somebody out of a Shakespearean tragic play. He lived by code all of his life, and at the end of his life, he violated his own code. All of his life, as long as he remembered God. God gave him good success, the Bible said. But the Bible says at the end of his his life, inexplicably, sin just shows up, pride. He looks over there and it's like one day the enemy's showing him the kingdoms of the world or something like with Jesus. And he looks around and he's like, yeah, I'm in charge of that. Yeah, I can move those people like chess pieces. Yeah, I'm in charge of that. I'm in charge of that. Oh, wait a minute. There's that church building over there. There's that temple. I'm not in charge there. I can't just do whatever I want to do there. It was like Satan over there going, God knows if you eat the fruit, you'll be wise. And Uzziah looked over there and was like, yes, I can go over there and do what I want to do. And he walked in there and 81 priests tried to stop him and restrain him from doing what he was about to do. He grabbed a censer from off the altar and went to go offer sacrifice which he was not authorized or consecrated or had the knowledge to do. There's a way to do things in God's house. There's a way to handle ministry. There's a way to be as pastors and as Christians. You don't just go in there and just wing it. Ask Uzzah who just tried to save the Ark of the Covenant with his hands. You don't just do that. And so he goes rushing in there to offer. And when he does, what happens? The Bible said, leprosy broke out on his forehead. As soon as the la- it touched the laver, and then the Bible says, the King James, I've always, I have to always say this when I tell this story, it's humorous to me. Because the King James said, in the, the great understatement in the Bible, he hasted to get out. I bet he was in a big time hurry, don't you think? When he saw in that laver, that mirror of that laver. Basin, I bet he, I'm sure he did say, I'm getting out of here in a hurry because you know I've done wrong. And the Bible says that he died, and they didn't even give him a king's burial, they buried him in a field near where kings were buried because they said he had leprosy. Isn't that like people? You give them 52 years of your life, and all they can remember in the end is that one bad thing. But that's the story the Bible tells. This young man not only was devastated with all the rest of the nation when he died. He was also disillusioned because his great leader had died in that way. Okay? Isaiah did something that most people don't do anymore. As soon as trouble comes in their religious experience, as soon as God doesn't seem to show up or do what he says he's going to do, we leave. Isaiah went to God's house when the trouble came. And what happened when he got there? Proverbs 29 and 18. He had a vision. I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of His robe filled the temple. And that vision of the, of the life that was, okay, that, that vision that He had, then that gave Him a path. It showed Him who He was. You know what it did? It lit Him up. As soon as He saw God's holiness, Heard the seraphim cry, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Isaiah didn't say, Hey, let me build you a temple. No. He said, "Woe is me. Woe is me." And we don't talk like that anymore. That's like Shakespearean. We don't say that. I mean, if, if if you if you found out tomorrow that your social security check was going to get cut in half, and you know, and then someone was standing next to you and they said, or your your, your paycheck was going to be cut in half, hardly anybody in here would go, "Woe is me." That's not how we would talk. But. It's okay? an old way of saying things. But here's the important thing that's it's, it's obscured by this language. Prophets do two things in their proclamation. They proclaim oracles of blessing that are known as oracles of weal, where they say, God bless you. And they do oracles of woe, where they say, Woe to Zion, woe to Tyre, woe to... Okay, this is the only time in the Bible when a prophet pronounced doom on himself. They're always woeing those people over there for their sins. Isaiah saw God in his glory, his holiness, and he immediately pronounced judgment on himself. Woe is me, I'm undone. That's a, if, if, he was, if this was modern psychologists, uh, if we were using the language of psychiatry or counseling, you would say, I'm, it's a, this is a process of disintegration. Literally, I'm falling apart. Woe is me, for I am undone. I am falling apart. Isaiah says, in the vision of God, in His holiness. Why is it in America that our, our, our heroes of the faith now, in the 21st century, are always these superstar Christians? Why isn't it that, like in Isaiah's day, the people who are closest to God are the people who are the most humble, the people who know their sinfulness, They know the gulf between God's holiness and their sinfulness and creatureliness. And that knowledge affects how they live. It means they don't come thundering down to you or judging you. That means instead they're hardest on themselves. They recognize the grace of God. The fact that you want me to speak for you. And that is what happened. You'd think somebody who's saying this about himself would just curl up in a ball and quit, but that's not at all what happened. You have to go through this darkness. You have to face this stuff in order to get to purpose because here's what happened. Woe is me for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And the Bible said the seraph came and put a coal on his lips and touched it. And then all of a sudden he could see and he could hear and he heard God say, who shall go for us? And Isaiah said, here am I. Send me. Here am I sending? Okay. So this vision that uh, th- this vision that Proverbs is talking about is a prophetic vision. It's not just a human imagination. It's not just looking at an empty canvas and being able to draw a picture, or or someone giving you some words, a lyrics, and then you going and putting music to it. That's an incredible gift that people have of imagination and skill, but that's not the vision that this is talking about. It's talking about prophetic vision, vision that, God, vision that God provides, okay? Inspired guidance from the Lord. Now, I said all that to say that what our job is is to, to develop a vision of life. That's what I think my, my task is at Mount Olive now. I mean, I've been going at it, but I've never been able to say it this way. This is, this, is the, this is the show. This is the whole game right here. We've got to get people seeing the right vision. Young people, the most important thing they need more than anything else in this time. Habakkuk prayed, Lord, I know you did great things in the past. And I know there's going to be a wonderful age to come but send revival in the midst of the years, in the in-between times. And what that means is, I need my own fresh vision of God and His majesty and His holiness. I don't just need to hear about Moses' skins on the walls, and I don't just want to hear about streets of gold. I want to know now. I want to see God, the vision of God and His glory right now. I want to experience that now. I want to have that, I know God wants me to have that. That's what this is for. So. We've got, to, we've got to cultivate that vision. Well, what are we gonna do? We're gonna do that willy-nilly? We're gonna make it up? Are we just gonna make it up? No. Vision of life informed by the story of Scripture. Go back to Philippians now and think about how this applies. I can't do all this tonight, but I'm just trying to get some of it started. Okay, let's go back to Paul again, our text. Paul is in prison. And he ought to be sad or he ought to be mad because he hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't done anything detrimental to society. He hasn't broken uh, any moral laws. All he's done is share good news that, as he understands it. Okay? The worst case scenario from the Roman Empire's perspective is he's offering ideas. He's, he's, he's trying to persuade people of ideas. Maybe those ideas are subversive. Maybe that's the point. Okay, but, but Paul hasn't broken any moral laws. So he ought to be sad, down, depressed, disappointed, angry, bitter. That's what humans do. But Paul isn't that way. And I submit to you the reason he wasn't is first of all, because he had a vision of life. And that vision of life was informed by the Scripture. The Bible says... I'm not going to be ashamed. Christ is going to be honored in my body. First of all, the fact that he uses Christ is already a scripture word. Christ is Messiah. He's already talking scripture right there. He's seeing his life in terms of scripture. I'm the Messiah. The Messiah has shown up and I'm in him and he's in me. Okay? For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. He goes on to talk about scriptural themes. Okay? If you read the passage all the way through to verse 26, you can I'll let you flesh that out because we are running out of time. The vision of life, to me, this is my understanding of what I'm supposed to be doing, the big picture. The vision to to, to develop a vision of life and to provide a vision for life for people that's informed by the story of Scripture. Sunday we're going to talk about Daniel, Lord willing, and how that man and his friends lived a life informed by a vision. Now, they had a vision that was informed by Scripture. A vision that was informed by Scripture. I will not eat. I'm going to shout. I will not eat a portion of the king's meat. I will not eat that. Why? That's stupid. Everybody eats it. Because my vision is informed by a Scripture that you don't know anything about. I'm not, I don't find out who I am. I don't base my identity on what everybody else in Babylon does. I know who I am in Torah. I know who I am in God's word. I know who I am in the law. The law I don't touch that stuff. You can change my name. You can change my clothes. You can change my, all these other things, but that diet it seems so arbitrary to them, Why are you worried about that? You let us give you Shazar. you let us give you new clothes. We taught you Babylonian, you weren't complaining about any of that. Why are you upset about the diet? Because it runs contrary to the vision informed by Scripture. God said, "Don't eat that." Well, but we all do, but God said, don't do it. The vision of life that's informed by the study of script, or by the story of Scripture. What story are you living in? I asked you last week, sometimes people, a lot of people are living the Horatio Alger story. They don't even know who Horatio Alger is, but they're living the story. A hundred and some odd years ago, Horatio Alger wrote a bunch of books about people who had it. They were poor. They had nothing. They came from nothing. And they got up every day and they pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps and they made something out of themselves. The American dream. I was nobody and I made something out of myself. Horatio Alger. And there's a lot of people out there living in that story. And that's the big story that they live by. That's the big one. They don't even know it. They're not conscious of it, but it is. That's the one informing them. Last year we got audited by the IRS. That's okay. Get up and keep going because we're going to have more than our parents did. Last year our house burned down. That's all right. Keep going forward because Horatio Alger's. that's our story we're living by. Because we're going to get ahead and we're going to have more than them. And that's the big story. What story are you living in? OK, what story? Groundhog's Day. <laughs> is that your story? <laughs> it's back in the same old, same old, same old. Is that your story or is it the Scripture? What's the, what's, this is why it's so important to soak in Scripture. I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but this is one good reason why to soak in Scripture. You need to nurture a true vision. You can't have a real vision. You can't know who God really is, who you really are, what's really wrong with the world, what the solutions are. You can't know any of that stuff with any clarity and with any honesty and truth without being informed by God's holy word. Jesus said in John 17 and 17, to know you is eternal life. And then he said when he prayed, somebody go home and read the the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus John 17, he prayed for his disciples and for others that would come later and he said these words. He said, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Set them apart through your word. Your word is truth. How can we be set apart? How can we know the truth? How can we have a real vision if we are not immersed in God's word? That's where the narrative is that feeds and fuels the vision we need—the true vision of the world. I've got to find ways. I'm trying to get creative. And, and, and parents in here, and grandparents in here, aunts and uncles, teachers—we got to figure, We got to get creative. We've got to take time back. Those we've got. I'm going to tell you how to say it. This is how we're going to have to say it. We need to repurpose some of the rhythms of our life. We need to repurpose some of the rhythms. Repurpose the rhythms. I'm talking about during the school year. What's the routine of getting the kids out of bed and getting them to school? What's the routine of getting them to school? What's the routine of picking them up? What's the routine on the weekend for you? If you're empty nesters, what's the the routine on the weekend for you guys? We've got to repurpose the basic rhythms of our life. We say we don't have time. People count on the church, they count on the church to train kids and youth. And we have a huge responsibility of that. But watch this. That's how many hours a year that the average faithful churchgoer. That's that's how many hours a year the average churchgoer. Faith okay. That's how much impact the church can have on, on a kid. That's how many hours a parent can. That's how many a parent can. We've got to repurpose some of this. The Bible said, when you, Moses, I'm not worried about you people. As long as you're out here having to count hand to mouth, manna, I'm giving you manna every day. I'm not worried about you right now. When I've got a cloud leading you and a fire leading you. He said, what I'm concerned about is what happens when you get into the land and you forget Or when your kids come by and they don't know what that was. They don't know where you were. And they say, what do these stones mean? These stones in this river. Somebody has to tell them. Those stones are there as a memorial because we were stuck here and God caused these waters to part for us. They won't know that unless we tell them. We have to tell them. We've got to repurpose basic rhythms in our life. If you, this is true for our own scripture, our own knowledge of scripture. If you mow the yard, put the scripture on inside in the earbuds. Go buy some earbuds. I'll buy them for you. Five below, it's $5. You don't have to go to Apple and get the best ones. You can go to five below and for five bucks you can buy these little earbuds, okay? And step into the 21st century as I'm crawling my way. But if you're mowing the yard, put those in and take off everything else except... Bible app and listen to somebody read you the Bible. If you don't like that droning guy, then listen to somebody else, but listen to him speak the word to you. Repurpose some rhythms. Give the little kid a shower, or your grandkid the shower. Go through the routine of brushing their teeth, whatever. Tell them, bind it like frontless before their eyes. Wrap it like necklace around your neck. Let it be there all the time. Let it be there. Set your mind on things above. Set your mind on things that are above. This is what we have to do if we're going to foster a vision. It has to be in a, a good, a true vision. It has to be informed by Scripture. I can't do the rest of it tonight, but that you, you can see what some of the stuff we talked about last week. Uh, what is that going to look like in real practice? Well, Luke six, forgiving people, uh, confession, stuff like that. We're going to have to this this vision that's informed by Scripture actually works itself out and flushes itself out in the development of virtue. Which, when you put all the virtues together, it's character. If you, wanted to take, if you wanted to use this metaphor, and somebody ought to write a book about this. This right here is God's big story, and it provides the script for the character that you play. This is the script for the character you're going to play. What would happen if somebody found four acts Let's call it, let I me mean, be real specific. Four acts and one scene from the fifth act. What would happen if tomorrow somebody unearthed a Shakespearean play? They found it, no one's ever read it. Four acts, totally complete, and the first scene of the fifth act. And they said, Matt, you are going to perform this play. So, wait a minute. I don't know how it ends. Or I think I know how it ends, but I don't know the in betweeners. There's some stuff I don't know. I'm going to have to improvise. You would immerse yourself in these acts, you would dive deep into those acts so that when you improvised scene two, it would be a faithful improvisation. Act 1 of our story is called creation. Act 2 is fall. Act 3 is Israel. Act 4 is Jesus. Act 5 is the church. It is the consummation of what Jesus is doing and the church is that scene. The New Testament scene one and you and I are living in scene 2. Okay? We already know the end of the story. We're given that by prophetic vision. But there's this gap. There's this space in here. Remember what Psalm 110 said? Psalm 110 and 1 said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. There is a gap between the time that Jesus was enthroned and installed at the right hand of the Father and the time in which He consummates His Lordship. And that interval of time is the time you and I are living in and that's where we get to improvise scene two. We won't be able to improvise scene two if we don't have a vision informed by the first acts. You got to know that. You got to know it well. That's a pretty stinking good illustration, if I do say so myself. I'm impressed. Father, I approach your throne of grace tonight, and I say to you with all the energy, passion, anointing of the Spirit, Lord, that that I I experience in this moment and in in the chance to teach your word. That on that board, that's the purpose of my life. In that, part of the virtues is being a godly and loving husband and father and son and neighbor and all these different roles that I play in my life. But this right here on this board, Paul said, for me to depart is better, but I'm sure that I'm going to be here because these are the purposes God has in my life. And Father, as long as I live and before you come, this is what this is the way, this is the path, this is what I'm supposed to do. I believe Mount Olive is called to this. You called me here. I didn't know anybody here. I have no history in this town. I have no history in this region. And all of the preaching I did in Texas all over the state... I never got very close to here. I went down to Houston and to Buffalo. I never got over this area. You called me sovereignly out of what we were doing to get here. And for several years, I didn't know if that was permanent, if that was the big long picture or whatever. But you showed us a couple of years ago that until you say otherwise, we've cut off all that other and we understand that God... This is the path. This is what you've called us to. Not just for Mount Olive, but for this region. We have an obligation to this region, Lord. You've, called to plant, you've planted us here and we are going to bloom and prosper here and accomplish what you've called us to and what's on that board is what you've called me to. We've got to develop a vision in people. We've got to help them foster that vision. But they won't see it, Lord, unless they're nurtured in Scripture. Unless they're soaked. In scripture, until they know the story. They're going to be always saying, what do these stones mean? What is this practice about? Why do we do that? Why do we say that? Why do church people do this? Father, we have to immerse them in the narrative, in the story of Scripture to foster a true vision. And that's not all just in your head, of course, because when you are informed by the story of Scripture, Lord, we know that that issues into character development, into the spiritual disciplines that develop Christ in us and make us mature in Jesus to become the royal priests because that's what the Scripture teaches us about who we are. That's the vision of who we are. We are you have decided out of your sovereign grace and love to rule the earth through obedient human beings. Adam couldn't do it. Israel couldn't do it as a nation. But Jesus did it. And in him and through him and since we're in him and he's in us, we have been called and endowed with the power. We are saints who don't have to sin anymore. We are royal priests who can act, Father. But But our actions are not going to be in right uses of power, in powerful right hands uh, displays. Often, Father, the way we're going to lead, the way that we are going to tear down principalities and powers is the same way that Jesus did. You did some awesome things like telling the wind and the waves to be still. And people were impressed with that. And people still are. And people are impressed with the fact that you could, you could cleanse the leper with one touch. Or you could just speak a word and the centurion's uh, servant was healed. But instead, Father, your greatest display of power was when you were hanging on a tree, looking like a victim. That's when the Bible says you established the kingdom. That's when you strip the principalities and powers of all their authority. And so our greatest acts of power as royal priests won't be in moments when everyone says how great we are at speaking or praying or acting, but instead, Father, our greatest acts of power, those moments when we take back the kingdom of Satan for the kingdom of God, will be moments when we turn the other cheek and we love our enemies and we give to those and pray for those who despitefully use and persecute us. Those are the moments, God, when we're most like Jesus in His death. That's where he established his kingdom. Paul says in this letter we're reading tonight that I may know him not only in the power of his resurrection but in the fellowship of his sufferings. That I may be conformable to his death and that if I'm willing to do that then I will attain the resurrection from the dead. But it comes; the cross comes first. We have a great promise about our future. Jesus has already gone into that God's future for the world. He already has the renewed body, the resurrected body. He's the promise of where we're headed. But Father, right now, we go through the cross the way He did. We live sometimes despised by people, misunderstood, betrayed. And we love our enemies. And we pray for those who despitefully use and persecute us. Because that's the way of the cross. That's the way of the Messiah. That's what a royal priest does. But Father, no human will ever do anything like that. We'll never muster the strength or courage or summon whatever it is we need to do that and have those virtues. We'll never be able to do that, Father, without the vision of who we are, who we truly are. I don't have to grasp for power in this life. I don't have to grasp to get ahead of my neighbors and get more than they do and accumulate more because there might be a disaster because I'm a royal priest, because I'm an adopted son of God, because I am in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, because God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power, love and a sound mind. Because if God is for me, who in the world could stand against me? But how can we have a vision like that, God, if we don't have that Scripture soaking inside? We're not just soaking in that stuff. It's the story of Scripture that provides that vision. That I can go through the fire and I won't be burned. I can go through the flood and I won't be drowned. Be bold, be strong, for the Lord your God is with you. That vision, God, it comes from the Scripture. And I pray, Lord, that we at this church will take that as our life's mission and purpose to develop that vision in people by soaking them in Scripture from the time that their are babies dedicated in this church until the day, Lord Jesus, that they die and go be with you. Father, I pray that we would do that. Teach us how to do that better. Show us how to be that people to accomplish what you've called us to. The last thing we didn't talk about much tonight and we'll do later, Lord, is the p- final prayer I pray. None of this is done in isolation. It requires community. You didn't get Peter by himself and take him around with you and have, and have a protege. You gathered 12 disciples and beyond them, a much bigger crowd. We need a people. We need a people. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together even more as you see the day approaching. Be the body of Christ. You're one member, you're one member. Father, help us to see that vision too. We're not going to be practicing these virtues. We're not going to be developing this character. We're not going to be who you've called us to be in isolation. It's never going to happen. It is not good for man that he should be alone. We have to do this together and we need each other. We need the accountability, the encouragement, the inspiration. That's why we're here tonight. I pray this Sunday that more, everybody that came here tonight, Father, that that attends on Sunday, that they will be the, the vanguard of something that happens in this church on Sundays going forward. That people will come with intention. That people will come with a plan. That people will come with intention. Not only just expecting a miracle, certainly that, but that they will come understanding why they show up. The reasons why. Father, this place is is a house of prayer and it is the pillar and ground of truth and it is the body of Christ and it is a headquarters for God's ambassadors and it is a habitation of God through the Spirit. Teach us who we are, Lord, and give us a sense of intention when we come together. Help us, Father, to to come and, and to enter the gates with thanksgiving and the courts with praise and be ready, Father, to receive and not just to receive, but to come and to serve, to be ready to serve To be ready to hear that God wants us. He's giving us a burden for this one here. Or He's got a good word for us to share with this one. Or He's got a a commitment or a sacrifice we need to go make for someone in there. And we need to offer help. Father, I pray or hospitality to a new person. Help us to come ready to receive and ready to give. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus. The powerful name of Jesus. The name above every name. Lord, we ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.